Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses, and under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The mercy of Christ gives us eternal life. Not only for after death, but especially for here and now. Jesus has given us life to live as new creations every day. We can build a better world through Christ's saving grace. Dave Isay wrote a book entitled, Listening is an Act of Love. It grew out of what was called the StoryCorps Project. It's been started for quite some time now. You may have participated in it. They had a listening booth here in Oklahoma City not all that long ago. But the whole idea was he wanted to create these listening booths where you could come and you could have someone interview you, maybe someone you love, maybe a member of your family, and you'd be asked to tell your story. And then when you were through, you would leave with that recording and it would also be cataloged to be a part of our history. And they had a, they said they, their purpose, his whole idea was our mission is to preserve and share humanity's stories in order to build connections between people and create a more just and compassionate world. Well, that's what they've been trying to do. And you think about it. Haven't you ever had someone you love who dies? And then you think back, I wish I'd interviewed them. I wish I could hear their voice again. I wish I could ask them this question or that question or hear their story. Well, that's what what StoryCorps helps to do, and it's been a very powerful thing. Well, in his book, uh, Listening is an Act of Love, he tells a story about one of those who came to StoryCorps. His name was Richard Collins. Richard Collins was 81 years old. He wound up having a son, a grandson, Sean, who was about 20. And Sean was the one who came along to interview his grandfather. And so they got set up in StoryCorps and he wound up saying, So grandfather, tell me about some story when you were in high school. And Richard thought about it and he said, Well, when I was a sophomore in high school, there was this beautiful red-headed girl who showed up at class. She was new to the school. 
I'd never seen her before. But oh, I thought she was just so beautiful. And I decided I wanted to date her. And so I tried to talk with her. I tried to get to know her. But she really wasn't interested in me. I tried everything I could to impress her, to get closer to her. But she wasn't interested. But finally, he got his break. They were both in drama. And they both got cast in the same play. She was cast as the older sister. He was cast as the younger bratty brother. And so now they were in the same play and they would have lots of dialogue together. Well, they had one scene where she was supposed to be shocked and faint and lying back in a chair. He was supposed to run over and get a few drops of water out of a vase and sprinkle it on her face to awaken her. But he thought, I need to do something more memorable than that. So he went out and got a vase that would hold about a gallon and a half of water. And he made sure to put some ice in it and get it really nice and cooled down. And so then when the time came, he ran over to the piano and he took the flowers out and he grabbed the vase and came over and dumped the whole thing on top of her. She shot up out of that chair, eyes wide, mouth hanging open. She couldn't speak. I mean, she was in such shock. She was standing there and 30 seconds would go by, which is a long time if you're in a play on a stage where nobody said anything. Standing there, she was just in shock. And when she finally reacted, she reacted by bringing a fist up and taking him straight into the face and knocking him down onto the stage. This was a small town where everybody would turn out to see a high school play. And for years they discussed how that year the acting was just so realistic. <laughs> Everyone remembered that year. Well, Richard said to his grandson, Sean, we didn't date in high school. <laughs> but when he graduated and went off to college, he said, I kept writing her letters. Whenever I was back in town, I'd go by to see her. When I went off to medical school, I would write her letters. And when I was in town, I'd come back by to see her. And finally, after he graduated from medical school, he said enough time had gone by that he asked her out for a date. And she said yes. And he said, Sean, your grandmother has been the love of my life for 50 years. And Sean said, how did you get her to go out with you? And he said, it was by patience and persistence that I was able to show her how much I loved her. And when I read that line, I thought, that's God's story. It's been through patience and persistence that God has been trying to show us how much he loved us. It goes back to the time of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and the prophets. In God's patience and persistence, he was trying to show us how much he loved us. 
And a few months ago, we celebrated how the angel came to Mary and said, you're going to have a baby and you shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. We said that Christmas was all about God trying to show us how much he loved us, his patience and persistence. It's what the life of Christ was about, and it certainly is the message of Holy Week. A week that started with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as people lined the streets waving their palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. They really believed Jesus was coming to form an army to overthrow the Romans. On Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, Jesus went to the temple where he would teach. On Monday, he kicked over the money changers' tables. But it was on Thursday, the Passover. In an upper room, Jesus would be there, and he would take the bread and break it and say, this is my body, which is broken for you. And take the wine, this is my blood that is shed for you. Through God's patience and persistence, he was trying to show us how much he loved us. And yet they would go to the garden. Judas would betray him. The disciples would run away. That night Jesus would be taken before the Sanhedrin, the religious authorities, and tried and found guilty. But they did not have the power of the death penalty. So it brings us to Friday. And the Bible helps us go through Friday more closely, hour by hour, than any of the rest of the days. For it is early, it says in the morning, which will be 6 to 8 a.m., Jesus taken before Pilate. And there before Pilate, he is tried. They put a crown of thorns on his head. He is uh, mocked. They put a robe on him. They beat him. And then he's condemned to die. It says at, at the early hour, at the third hour, which will be 9 a.m., that is the time that Jesus is actually crucified. You don't think about it that it's going to be early in the morning. For three hours he suffers till it says the sixth hour. The sixth hour is noon. And it is at noon when it says the skies begin to grow dark. But it's not until the ninth hour, which is three o'clock, that it says Jesus dies. It's finally at evening, which would be six o'clock, that Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and asks for his body, and he and Nicodemus take the body down and put it in a tomb. We've walked all the way through the week. But something happens significant, in my opinion, at the, the ninth hour, the three o'clock, when Jesus dies. If you read the scripture lesson this morning, you come to that 51st verse. It is the verse, the words that will be used exactly in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, we want to make that clear. From top to bottom, the curtain temple was torn in through. And then it moves on. And we read that and think, what in the world is it talking about? When you had the temple, you had this outer courtyard of the temple where Jews and Gentiles could come, people could do business. Well, then you went into the inner courtyard, and that was the area where women could worship, Jewish women. 
And then you went to the next area, and that was where Jewish men would worship. And then you could go to the next area, and that's where the priest would go. But then you went to the final area inside, and it was draped in this curtain. And it was the holiest of holies. It was believed that in that area, God was more present on earth than at any other place in the holy of holies. And only the high priest could go into that once a year. It is said that when Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And I think it's saying to us symbolically what happens is the nature of God is now revealed to us. The holiest of holies. You get to see inside. You see the nature of God. The curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It is in Christ, the death of Christ, that you see the nature of God. And we experience God's saving grace, which changes everything. This morning, I want to conclude this sermon series, Saving Grace. For we have been looking to what does it mean to say Jesus is Savior? What does it mean to experience God's grace so that it changes life now and life eternal? I want us to look at the curtain being torn in two and ask, what do we see? Two important things. Several years ago, Marsh and I had traveled to Paris. And as a part of the trip, we, I wanted to go, and Marsha did too, out to the... Um, the Pierre Lachaise Cemetery. It's an old, old cemetery out on the edge of Paris. Lots of famous people are buried there, people like Jim Morrison. But that's not why I wanted to go there. No, I, I wanted to go there for a different reason. I wanted to see Peter Abelard and Heloise because that's where they are buried. And Peter Abelard, back in the 12th century, was an incredible theologian, he was a great teacher, and he began sharing other ideas in the church. It was such a powerful and influential figure. And it was Peter Abelard who would say, God's mercy trumps justice every time. Christ had been crucified to awaken compassion in us, and by so doing, he became our Savior. He was crucified to awake compassion in us and so doing became our Savior. You had the centurion who was there. Again, if you read these three scriptures, you have the same quote about the curtain and then you always hear about the centurion. And it says the centurion, when he saw what happens, he is the one who then says, this was the Son of God. Now, the reason that's important, it's a Gentile. It's a Roman soldier. It's not the disciples who declared Jesus as the Son of God. He's gone by lots of titles, but people don't call him the Son of God. This is the first time for that title, and it's not by the disciples. It's not by the Jewish authorities. It's by a Gentile, a Roman soldier. A Roman soldier who was there and believed he was innocent. And though he was innocent and going through the most excruciating death, 
he would have compassion on all the people who had put him there. Father, forgive them. And when you experience that kind of forgiveness, compassion, when you do not deserve it, it changes your heart. It changed the heart of the centurion. Compassion will beget compassion, begets compassion, and it changes the world. I've been working really hard to prepare for the journey we're going to be taking this year to go to Oberammergau in Germany. Eighty members of our family of faith are going to be traveling to go to the Passion Play. It's the historical play that took place every 10 years since about 1650, and it's supposed to take place in 2020. We're going this year in 2022 to go to the Passion Play and to travel through Italy on our way there. So we're doing lots of reading and studying about Italy, and the Reverend Linda Harker got to telling me about a story in Italy about a, a young man named Nicholas Green. It was back in 1994. Nicholas Green was there with his sister Eleanor and, of course, his parents. He was seven, she was five. His parents, um, Reg and Maggie. And they'd been visiting down in southern Italy, and now they were driving up north on one of the major highways. It was sort of deserted and gotten late in the evening when a car came racing up behind them and got right on their tail and scared Reg to death. And after a little while, it finally pulled out and started to speed up. And they thought, okay, good, they're going to pass. But as they pulled up beside him, it slowed down and they rolled down the window and there was a man in the mask. And he started shouting in Italian. They couldn't understand. They felt they were being asked to pull off. He thought, that's not a good idea. So he stepped on the gas and started to speed up and the person pulled in behind him and they suddenly heard pop, pop, pop and it was gunfire. And then the car pulled up beside him and again shot and broke out the windows and then pulled off. Well, can you imagine how terrified you would be in that kind of a moment? They pulled over the side of the road. This car had sped on away and flipped on the dome light. It's like, Okay, the two children were in the back seat. They were asleep. And they looked back, they, they were still asleep. So they thought. Eleanor was asleep. But Nicholas had been shot in the head. They rushed him to the nearest town, a hospital, into another one. They put him on life support. And two days later they said... We need to turn it off. He is gone. And so the family made a decision. There in Italy in 1994, they decided to donate his organs. Five organ donations and the corneas, seven people. Italians in a foreign country for them, strangers. They would be blessed with life. There was a boy who would get a heart. He'd been barely able to walk through the house and was obviously going to die. He began to thrive. There was a woman who was in and out of a coma who got his liver and she sprang to life. Two years later, she would get married. Two years after that, she would have a son. 
she would name him Nicholas. Now in the end, there are seven people who were incredibly blessed. And what the family didn't know was that the organ donation rate in Italy was one of the lowest in all of Europe. The Pope encouraged it. People didn't do it. And now this family from America had a child who was innocently killed, and they decided to do this. Authorities would really research this, and they would finally decide probably what happened was it was the mafia, and it was the mafia who thought this was a car that was from a jewelry store that they wanted to rob. It was a mistake, a mistaken identity of a car, a robbery gone bad, and Nicholas was killed. In the end, four months after all this happened, they brought the family back to meet these seven people who had received a gift. And you think about, okay, seven lives have been changed and blessed. No, 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 no. There was the husbands and the wives and the moms and the dads and grandparents and aunts and uncles and there was all these extended families that showed up because when one person was blessed, a whole family was blessed. And it was big news literally across the nation of Italy. It's like the whole nation felt a sense of, of guilt that this could happen here and that this family showed such compassion. Well, what started happening was everybody wanted to talk about Nicholas Green. Today, there are more than 50 roads and parks squares that are named Nicholas Green. 27 schools are named Nicholas Green. 27 sites like bridges and amphitheaters are named Nicholas Green. The donation of organs has gone from the lowest in Europe to almost the highest. In a 10-year period of time, it skyrocketed. If you go to California where they live, there's a big bell tower and there's a center bell that was cast at the Vatican. And it has the name Nicholas Green and the names of the seven people who were blessed. And then 139 other bells from all over Italy and they hang and when the wind blows, then they're all making a sound that echoes out across the country. When they were interviewed and they asked Reg, why did he do it? I want to read you what he said. If the choice was between being angry at the people who did it and wanting to help somebody else as the first priority, Nicholas would have undoubtedly chose helping somebody out. I'm impatient and when things go wrong, I get upset about it. Nicholas always had a calmness about it all and a forgiveness that made you want to do the same. It literally has changed Italy. It's known as the Nicholas Effect. Movies have been made about it with Jamie Lee Curtis and Alan Bates. And the Nicholas Effect. For compassion begets compassion begets compassion. And it's when a centurion saw Jesus dying on the cross. The forgiveness that he offered to show compassion on these people that the curtain in the temple was torn in two and he saw clearly who God was and it changed his heart 
truly, this was the Son of God. And secondly, again, it was Peter Abelard who said, God's loving mercy is constant. The attitudes that need changing is not God's, but the self-hating human. Christ did not die on the cross to change God's mind, but to reveal the love of God to us. Jesus told us the story of the prodigal son. We looked at it last September. For four weeks we looked at it. We looked at Rembrandt's painting, Return of the Prodigal Son. And if you remember clearly, we looked at how he had the loving father who loved his son, but his son asked for his fair share, went into a faraway country, made a mess of his life, decided to come home, and when he came home, he didn't even ask for forgiveness. He said, I'm not even worthy of forgiveness. I'm not worthy to be called your son. But what he discovered was the father who had loved him still loved him when he was in a faraway country making a mess out of his life. And the loving father still loved the son when he came back home. No, the father's spirit never changed. It was the son's spirit that needed to change. It was his heart that needed to be awakened and changed. It is when you and I see Christ on the cross and we experience that incredible forgiveness and compassion that it does something to our heart to where you know what it means to be forgiven and to be loved. And you're no longer afraid to live life, but you're also no longer afraid of death. For the reason so often people are afraid of death is the fear that either it's going to be a nothingness or you're going to be punished. But the promise is that it is God who has chosen to love His children through His patience and His persistence. He has been trying to tell us for thousands of years how much God cares. And it's when you and I experience that saving grace that you're not afraid and you know we are more than a body. We can live life unafraid. We can die unafraid because of God's saving grace. This is the 10th anniversary of the publication of the book, Proof of Heaven, by Eben Alexander. I've heard him speak before, an outstanding speaker. I, I got to tell you, I hate the title of the book because I don't believe you can prove heaven. And it tends to imply, oh, we're going to prove heaven. You don't prove heaven. You and I believe, we trust in God's constant love of us as children, and we believe it will be good. There is mystery involved here. However, I do love Evan Alexander's story, and I do love the things he had to say and hearing about his experience. You see, he was a neurosurgeon, and as a neurosurgeon, his world became science. You know, science, what's, what's real, what's true? It's what you can see, it's what you can measure, it's what you can hold. And that really became what he looked to. He said he didn't he didn't deny God. He still went to church on Easter and Christmas. But he really wasn't a person of faith. And then he had a near-death experience. Out of the blue, he had a near-death experience, perfectly healthy, fine man. And then he developed an E. coli meningitis. And the chances of getting that are one in a million, especially if you've not had surgery or something. No, it just hit him. And he got up one morning, had a headache, went back to bed, 
And by that afternoon, he was in convulsions and he was rushed to the hospital unconscious and they put him in a coma, put him on life support. And by the next day, they said he has a 10% chance of living. Within one more day, they said it's a 2% chance. And if he does live, he will live in a, an assisted living home for the rest of his life, unable to speak or walk or talk. In the meantime, they're trying to take care of him. And Eben Alexander says, I was having a near-death experience. It went on for a whole week. And at the end of the week, the doctors finally said, we need to take him off life support. And when they said that, he came back. I mean, he came back. No one could believe it. A month later, he had perfect memory, speech, walk, talk. He was fine, completely back. But he had had this experience. He said it was more vivid and more clear than life is here. And he had the experience that so many near-death experiences are. We've talked about them. You get drawn towards the light. And it is so beautiful. There's such love. There is such joy. He said it was such an incredibly wonderful experience. And you knew that you were in the presence of the Creator. When he came back, he did a 180-degree flip. Loves science, wants to know about science, believes in science, but he also believes there's something so much more. There is this promise of life after death, that you and I cannot fully comprehend at this time in life. And it is in the midst of being born into the arms of a loving Heavenly Father, the Creator. Well, he looked at his life and, and as he comes back and looks at it, he said he started realizing he had had patience for years telling him about these kind of experiences. But he had never listened because he didn't believe it. And if you're not believing it, then even though you're hearing it, you discount it. And that's what he had been doing. And he thought of, a, of an experience he had had right before he had his NDE. Right before that, there had been a lady named Susanna and her husband George. And they had a wonderful daughter, Christina. She was grown, beautiful, kind lady. But it was George now, after these years of he and Susanna being married, he got brain cancer. And they came in and they did all that they could and Evan operated and said he bought him a year and a half of quality time. And then George passed away. It was only a couple of years later that Christina began to feel bad, his daughter. And she went in an MRI and she had brain cancer. Now having watched her father die of brain cancer, now she was terrified she was so afraid of dying. She knew the prognosis was not good. She was so scared. Evan was at the hospital actually looking at the MRIs, trying to figure out how do we go in, what are we going to cut out, how do we try to do this? When the phone rang, the nurse came in and said, it is Susanna on the line. Susanna, Christina's mom, George's wife. He said, she's on the line and she wants to talk to you. She wants to talk to you now. And he said, I've learned, you know, you can take care of people's needs physically, but 
As a doctor, you're supposed to take care of their needs emotionally as well. So he stopped what he was doing immediately and went to take the call. And when he started talking, Susanna said, Dr. Alexander, I just had to tell you, last night, George came to our daughter Christina in a dream. He came in a dream and he said to her, it's going to be okay. You don't have to be afraid. And it meant so much to her. Ah, well, that is so wonderful, said Evan. I'm glad she had a dream that brought her some comfort. No, 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 doctor, you don't understand. George came to our daughter Susanna, uh, um, Christina, and he was wearing this yellow shirt and this yellow fedora. Ah, said Eben, it just shows there is no dress code in heaven. <laughs> no, 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 doctor, you don't understand. I bought that for him when we were dating, and it was kind of out there. But I just thought he looked so dashing in it, so handsome. And so we took it on our honeymoon. And on our honeymoon, he wore this bright yellow shirt and this yellow fedora, and I thought he was just so dashing. Well, the honeymoon was over. We packed it up to come home, and our baggage got lost. Oh, well, I'm sure that Christina feels great comfort in knowing that she has heard this story down through the years from y'all about the yellow fedora and the yellow shirt. And No, 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 doctor, you're not getting it. That was our secret. We never found the luggage. We never went out and bought another yellow shirt and yellow fedora. I mean, it was kind of out there. So we were really a little embarrassed about the whole thing. We never told anyone. It was our secret. So she's never heard that story. And the other night, George came to her. He came to his daughter and wearing a yellow shirt and a yellow fedora to tell her, it's going to be okay. You don't have to be afraid. And she is so much better. And Eben said, when it happened, I thought Susanna was calling me so that I would comfort her. Now I realize she was calling me to comfort me. Because Susanna knew the truth. The temple curtain has been torn in two from top to bottom so that you can see the love of God. And when you see the love of God, when you experience that forgiveness, then you're not afraid to live life and you're not afraid of death. For you know that we are more than a body and will one day be born into the loving arms of our Creator. The curtain of the temple has been torn in two. It changes everything when you can know God's saving grace. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.
Amen. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses. Learn all about St. Luke's different services and programs on our website, stlukesokc.org. We trust you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week.